Hi, everybody. Thanks to the robotic gringa voice that just told us recording is in progress. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Elisa Perrin. And Prof Perrin, it's a great privilege to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Tell us, apart from my cat pulling my slippers onto the floor, what is the podcast is a, a Pacific Basque militant. His name is Chinguri. That's his birth name anyway. And he doesn't like it if he's not given 100% focus from me, which is fair enough. But apart from the podcast, could you tell us, Professor Perrin, about the things that today are dynamizing you, troubling you, interesting you? Goodness, that's a big question. Um, in, I certainly could talk about world affairs and all of that, uh, which is infuriating, uh, motivating, uh, making me ponder all sorts of things. But I'll focus on my research to keep things a little more narrow. Um, I have been like so many people who do work in media industries these days, uh, very attentive to labor issues. Um, certainly in the States, uh, it's been interesting to be following, you know, both the recently resolved strikes with the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, but also just more generally labor organizing with the guilds and unions and how that connects to sort of larger patterns. Um, so that would be one thing. I'm currently just starting to teach a class on the business of unscripted television. So clearly discussions of labor figure in there in pretty fascinating ways as organizing is starting to mobilize, perhaps, um, or at least be discussed um, in that realm. These are indeed very important questions. They're things that people in the study of the media rarely focused on until really the last 20 or 30 years. What turned you on to such questions? Um, it's interesting. Well, of course, your work is a key part of that and what you all did with the Global Hollywood Books, um, I see as a really important point in the process. To me, I think uh, partly through professional and personal relationships with media workers and experiencing that, doing more interviews, uh, over the last decade or so, I've uh, brought in several dozens of media industry practitioners into my classes to give their sort of personal perspectives. And of course, the more you talk to people, the more you see and hear their firsthand experiences, at least for me, that has really energized me and made me empathetic to and frustrated about a lot of the challenges that are being faced. And of course, just tracking the consolidation of the industries and the role of tech companies and how things have intensified in terms of worker conditions, um, in terms of demands placed on them and compensation issues, it quality of life, all of that. It's just become that much more imperative. Occupational health and safety. Can I ask you a pedagogic question then? This sounds like a wonderful thing to be doing. You invite <laughs> them in. They probably say things I do not say things like, I do not want to give a speech. So how does it happen? How do you warm the students up? How do you warm the guests up? What what occurs in a typical class of that kind? Yeah, it's it's been really fascinating. So 
clearly I've refined my skill set as I've gone. <laughs> um, but it's part basically I have every week what I call media industry conversation series. And we have a different topic that we focus on each week and a guest speaker who is sort of invited to speak to that specific topic and works in a different domain. Um, I think this is the virtue of being in a place like Texas where I'm able to tap into our sort of vast set of relationships and alumni base and all of that. But in terms of the structure of it, uh, part of it I feel like is a training exercise for students in how to speak to industry professionals and how to be conversant in the language of the industry. So I have a very specific format that I use with every guest um, in terms of what is your career trajectory? When you start off with the personal narrative, of course, that often warms people up and makes them more comfortable speaking. Um, what is sort of the scope or roles and responsibilities of what you do? Um, and then backing up, what do you see is in terms of the state of the media industries uh, or whatever sector they're engaged in? And then ending with advice that they might give for students. And so I train students to kind of know the format and to be attentive or I try to get them to be attentive to the ways different people talk about what they do. What will they disclose? What will they not disclose? Um, what types of people share what types of information? And we often do a debrief so that we talk through both the takeaways they get in terms of the substance of what's said, but then also in terms of how we might connect that to issues that we're addressing in the course or that maybe aren't being said or that are being said in subtext. <laughs> so. Sure. Yes, because one of the unfortunate things about the private sector, especially in the United States, is that people are told to be terribly secretive about what they do to avoid the prospect of worker solidarity. Because only about a third of our listeners are in the US, but that's the plurality. Just to give some context, so you're at the University of Texas at Austin. Austin, a big, important Texas city, state capital, but also the center of South by Southwest, which probably people will have heard of in terms of the importance of popular music in not only Austin, but really worldwide when it comes to that nub of things. But also your department is very famous and it has lots and lots of distinguished alumni, both in academic worlds and in media worlds. So I can say those things because I'm not there. You might feel... <laughs> embarrassed, but am I roughly right in what I just said properly? I mean, I think that's a very kind um, and uh, generous assessment. I do think that we're, I'm fortunate to be in a department that has a rich base of alums on both counts, right? Both as scholars <laughs> and as yes. industry practitioners. Um, and you know, I actually got my PhD here many, many moons ago, too. So I'm biased in that way. Uh, and also just the history of scholars that have taught here um, from Janet Steiger, maybe hopefully some of these names will resonate with your listeners. Janet Steiger, Tom Schatz, Horace Newcomb, 
um, all of whom I worked with when I was a grad student um, and beyond. Uh, John Downing, um, Karen Wilkins, I, you know, the list goes on and on in terms of scholars across media and communication studies. Mm, absolutely. And it is indeed a distinguished roll call and uh, distinguished members of the department now. So getting away from the pedagogy, and I do appreciate your sharing what you do, it makes me think, bloody hell, I'm in Madrid. Why am I not doing that? Because <laughs> it would be easy. You know, the Queen of Spain did her undergrad and master's in my department. The mayor of Spain, of Madrid did her degrees with us. It shouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> However, maybe the Queen isn't available next week, but I'm going to be putting in inquiries. Okay, sounds so, good. <laughs> apart from the pedagogy stuff, tell us a little bit about your research, which follows a number of intersecting trajectories, I'd say, over the last, I guess, 15 years, I've probably been aware of your work. Um, yeah. So uh, I will start with saying one of the virtues of doing all of these interviews is they've become source material for, for those who agree to be recorded. Um we produce podcasts, but then I'm also working with two former PhD students on a book that's drawing from those interviews to talk about the changing nature of media work and sort of do the kind of contextualizations about labor and work conditions um, that hopefully can function as a textbook of sorts for students that are wanting to have that larger frame of understanding um, the nature of the industry from sort of internships and labor at that stage to professionalization, soft skills, globalization strategies, you name it. So that's sort of the linkage, I'd say, between the pedagogical and the research. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my own trajectory, it's a bit of a weird one, as we all have. Um, I My first book was not reliant on interviews. It was more discursive and in its analysis, industrial analysis of the history of Miramax and indie film in the 90s. Uh, and that uh, these days, that was published pre all of the Weinstein Miramax news coming out, although certainly we knew some sense of what things were. Um, but that came out in 2012. It was actually something I had done as my master's thesis and then returned to it to write as a book after I graduated. And so that kind of traced how and why indie film was positioned in relation to sort of larger Hollywood practices and the ways that discourses of quality and prestige were deployed in certain ways for product differentiation and what was and what wasn't constituted as quality. Um, so that was a book that I wrote as my first book. And then more recently, in terms of books, I moved in a completely different cultural domain and uh, perception of cultural, cultural quality um, for many people's parts in co-authoring a book with Greg Steirer from Dickinson College about the comic book industry and Hollywood and the American comic book industry, I should note. Uh, and use the comic book industry as a way to think about 
how relationships between different industry sectors um, connect or don't. So in terms of the work that I looked at, thinking about how workers move across or don't uh, film, television, comics, uh, also cha- uh, discussing or trying to sort of challenge narratives of corporate competence and synergistic success by understanding failures in the efforts. In particular, I talked about Warner Brothers and their ongoing struggles to effectively exploit comics as property due to organizational challenges and intellectual property and how it was deployed by the comic and IP was deployed by the Hollywood media industries more specifically. So that was something that came out a couple of years ago, and that was very heavily reliant on interviews with people in the comic book industry, in the publishing, as well as beyond um, in terms of licensing, merchandising, but also in Hollywood and with literary agents, you know, both within and beyond comics. So it was it was a Different road to take. Going back to the first of those, Miramax, it's ironic, isn't it, that it took Weinstein's sexual assaults and so on to bring to the fore what was known about the old-time studio moguls a century ago. And Variety even has a, a gossip podcast about the horrors that they and some of their actors visited on women. But you were saying that what became the Me Too breakthrough, if we can call it that, was something that, in a sense, you knew about, but presumably couldn't write about, or it was whispered, or something like that? My sense is, and it was pretty clear in terms of just being in that ecosystem, even prior to going to grad school, I interned and was an assistant in LA and that sort of thing. Um, There was certainly knowledge of his abusiveness and his social unacceptability. Um, He was widely perceived as a bully um, and certainly misogynist, but I don't think it would have been possible to register the degree of it. At least what came out was just appalling on a level that's hard to imagine and obviously not just with him. I actually remember... Um, And one of the interesting things about teaching this business of Hollywood class that I teach every fall is every fall, there's a different set of issues that arise that you're focused on, right? Which always keeps you on your toes. Um, And I actually remember talking about how toxic the indie space was in part due to the toxicity of Miramax and the Weinsteins and their behavior in class. And that night, the first story broke about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Weinstein, sorry, Weinstein. And we came back to class the next day and the students were like, what? You were just talking about that. Of course not to the degree. But I think, you know, there were all sorts of stories. As you note, like this is built into the DNA of this industry as a set of behaviors. And certainly Miramax and the Weinsteins did all they could to cultivate the mogul image and even in that way, they did. <laughs> and given that it's 12 years since the book came out, I think. Oh, my God. 
I haven't thought about it that way. I keep carbon dating you. I'm sorry, Prof. I apologize, Prof. No, no, no. no, no. I just hadn't thought about it. 12 years since it came out. If you were to revisit it, as I'm sure you'll be invited to do at some point, if not to rewrite it, then to write about it, apart from presumably something on Me Too and the scandal, scandals, would there be anything else that you would change moving aside from the sexual violence and bullying in terms of the analysis that you presented? I think my analysis, hopefully, I think largely at the lar- at the macro level holds. Certainly you could build in more of that. I think that ties to how I've moved much more into production culture and interviews as a methodology. And I think I would have incorporated more of that and it would have added a certain different dimension to the study. Um also, I, you know, I think there's ways that the story could be continued on, not only in terms of Miramax. In some ways, I felt like I was able to finish it as the company in the form it had taken died and the industry as it had existed in a certain formation collapsed. Um, but the, what's been interesting is I've been contacted more to talk about A24, <laughs> as the sort of successor to the Miramax model, um, being a sort of small distributor that has a lot of cultural cachet and has cultivated a lot of the same aura with a particular audience and taste culture, um, then I have been actually talked talk to others about Miramax per se. In some ways, I think I'm happy to close the door on that topic and... There have been plenty of other people that have taken up that mantle in other ways. Understood. One of the things that's extremely puzzling for people outside the United States and many inside is this use of the word independent. (laughs) And, of course, this was a, a big term for popular music as well as supposedly avant garde film in the 1990s. Pretty white concept, by and large, especially in music, but also in film production and distribution. Could you help us? (laughs) You're you're screwing up your face, Prof, which means that you can see this is a question you do not wish to hear. Oh, no, no. I'm happy to answer it. It's just such a complicated one, as you know. I know. (laughs) It's like, where to start? Could you sharpen Um, for a little bit? Independent from what? And what characterizes what these folks produce as independent or indie, to use the term of art at this point? Yeah. And so a lot of what the book is focusing on is the way that that discourse mutated over time. Um, because as it was initially deployed by Miramax in the 80s and so many other companies that had a particular structural institutional meaning, right? As in not affiliated with the major media companies, major capital of the conglomerates, um, the resourcing, all of that. It was sort of an, it was much more an alternative taste culture, an alternative set of institutions, all of that, right? Um, as it was deployed initially by Miramax and other companies like New Line, which had a different strand. And I'll say as a side note that Dan Herbert, if you haven't spoken to him, he has a great new book on New Line, which is sort of the 
mirror image of Miramax um, because it was more focused on genre or low culture content as opposed to Miramax's pursuit of our high culture prestige fair. Um, but anyway, uh, Michael Newman expands much more on indie as a sort of cultural discourse that is tied to a particular taste culture. I look at that to the extent that there's a lot of slippage there between the sort of cultural distinctions and the institutional meanings and how that ended up being advantageous as a marketing angle to Miramax as it became it and so many other companies became institutionalized within the larger Hollywood corporate system. Um, and so a lot of what my book is looking at is, yes, Miramax is the primary focus, but why is it that throughout the 90s, every major media conglomerate really was interested in having what I call indie to differentiate from independent, a specialty division, a niche-oriented division that was located within their company that was sort of R&D for talent. Um, so a lot of talent got their start in that space. Um, oftentimes able to generate a lot of content relatively inexpensively at the time that DVD and prior to that VHS and cable were huge markets for a lot of that. It was a different industrial context that provided opportunities there. Um, so one thing that I do try to address in terms of the Americanness of it all is that there is a discourse of this being American indie film, right, or independent. And one thing that I kind of argue is that that is, if you look at what actually these companies were acquiring and distributing, it wasn't really American per se, or some of it was, right? The There were the Tarantinos and the um, Soderberghs and all of that, but there was a much larger swath of, um, content that came, especially from English language, English speaking countries like the UK and Australia and New Zealand, right? Um, with, you know, The Crying Game was actually the movie that made Miramax um, as an example, or these cross transnational projects as well. And what was fascinating to me as well was how much Miramax actually really tried to have international or foreign language, as they were called then, imports succeed and weren't able to. Like, they tried. And that's kind of interesting in its own right, the extent to which the discourse did or didn't constrain them and and constructions of audiences limited them. I still think you should write a book called The Life and Times of Parker Posey. <laughs> she's great she is great and she was Ms. Indy wasn't she at some point in the 90s uh, she was if, if the film was deemed independent and important and from the US damn it she was in it right yeah yeah um, I mean there and there were so many people like that that were that moment oh. and which is fascinating. And, and I also, I think it's a generational thing, how much this was allied with sort of a certain younger baby boomer slash Gen X uh, generation. Um, it's what I found really fascinating is I just wrote an article about efforts to translate discourses of indiness to television. So uh, what got labeled as indie TV? 
um, or who labeled it as indie TV and what was what was the reason for the effort or what did that mean? And um, it was fascinating to trace the discourse, which basically was a bunch of people that were film snobs in the indie film world. So their cultural identity was so allied with that, that like they were the ones that it mattered to and the publications and institutions that supported it framed it as such. So Sundance, you know, all the festivals, except for Cannes, which made very clear they don't do television because, of course, they don't, Um, although not really. That's a separate conversation. But all the festivals all took on indie TV strands, Um, indie TV festival, um, like specifically for television started. There was a period where HBO tried to have indie TV night. (laughs) They promoted as such, which see if you can figure out what those shows were. Any guesses on that? Well, I... I obviously wasn't in the U.S. when that was happening because I always had subscriptions to HBO. But, I mean, in terms of television, would that be things using the idiom of the Sopranos, let's say? Funnily enough, um, that kind of generation, the 2000s generation of TV, didn't really capture that discourse. It was much more um, Lena Dunham and girls or the new class brothers and togetherness. Yes. Anyway, this whole strategy failed miserably. And so I sort of talk about like how this marketing angle and these efforts to brand things as indie just didn't work for television. And part of that I think is because television is such a much more expansive object. Quality TV was more encompassing as a discourse that was a, like for The Sopranos that was able to pull in a lot of that. Um, And then a lot of it was in the 2010s, kind of early stage streaming era stuff was labeled as indie, like Transparent or um, I'm trying to think of other, Orange is the New Black had that attached to it. Certain shows and creators. And Transparent had its own indie scandal. Uh, very much, um, as of course did Sex and the City, which in its, I realize isn't in this, but in its later iteration yeah. probably aspired to be. Orange is the New Black, I guess, has eluded a lot of those scandals, partly because it isn't full of boys, probably. Yeah, it did have its own set of scandals in terms of exposés about how the workers didn't benefit from the success, but a very different set of issues. Yes, and I think we could apply that to everything we've been discussing and more. This is true. This is true. Prof, could I? Um, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to move to another domain, so if there are more things to say about the I word, please proceed. I think we've we've, uh, covered that sufficiently. We've exhausted the I, I word. So I wanted to ask you about the comic book work. I have the book. It's terrific. Thanks. And here's my amateur hour analysis. Tell me where I've got it right and where I've got it wrong. So there's an explosion of comic books in the U.S. starting in the late 30s with Detective Comics, DC, which produces Superman, and then later on Marvel. And people will probably be familiar with the initially more TV-based and later film-based appropriations or exploitations or dramatizations or adaptations, whatever term one wishes to use, of these things, right? Spider-Man, etc. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? It's Superman. Not in that order. And 
this has been very successful, but it's currently a fuck up. <laughs> Indeed. So that's my amateur hour, you know, 10 second account. Tell me where I've got it wrong and if in any place I got it right. No, I think that uh, it's fair that, that, you know, clearly there is a long history of uh, comic books and their the intersection of the characters and stories and publishers with Hollywood. Um, what was fascinating for us to think about and explore is like, what were the forces or factors that made that elevated the interest of Hollywood on a scale and scope that was so different beginning in the eighties, but then really intensifying in the two thousands. And so, you know, these publishers themselves were marginal and disreputable a lot of the time. (laughs) And um, the status of comics was, you know, linked to, um, young boy readers who weren't especially valued and violence and all sorts of stuff. Right. Um, And so it, a lot of that content operated on the margins, very popular, obviously dating back, but not predominant. So the early content like Superman on TV in the fifties would be a, um, you know, an off, off network or, um fringe hour showing it wouldn't be in prime time right um or uh serials of these that were attached to movies in the 40s right um and so a lot of what was fascinating to us is that so much work on comics has been out of literary studies art history very textual ideological audience based but and a lot of the discussion of why it took off tended to be grounded in discussions of like 9-11 and needing the need ideological needs for heroes and that sort of stuff. And I think that's a part of the story. But I also think that there was an intersection with how Hollywood changed in terms of its structure and practices and how these represented kind of the perfect art objects to tap into as IP. Um, until they were just, as you note, overexploited, overextended, exhausted. Um, we'll see what happens from here. I'm glad we ended when we did. I will say that. The book <laughs> end- <laughs> well, it is the classic case of the Leninist analysis of capitalist overproduction. And this is the yeah. problem always with the United States television, which is take a good idea and then make hundreds of episodes out of it instead of the European thing, which is take a good idea and make six. (laughs) Leave it at that. And there are all kinds of different reasons why that happens, of course. Yeah. But thank you. That's a wonderful account. And as you imply, there are these textual and industrial imperatives. I'm reminded of the way in which many years ago one used to teach – Paul Schrader's account of film noir versus Paul Kerr's, where Paul Schrader does his highly interpretative account in which this is all about men not being able to get it up after the war because they come back and women have taken their jobs and this is why they start killing everybody 
and going insane. And Paul Kerr's one being actually, dude, it's about studios wanting to use studio space 24 hours a day with fewer technicians and diminished power costs so they have less lighting. And how we <laughs> present the students with these different accounts. And as you're saying, with reference to earlier work on comic books, they're both true. And they're not necessarily, you know, exclusion exclusive of one another. They're quite compatible. The skill is to be able to juggle the two in ways that, of course, Hollywood's always done. And you mentioned Tom Schartz earlier, and, you know, his wonderful work does this so brilliantly. I mean, perhaps nowhere better than his troping of Andre Bazar within the Genius of the System book. But allowing these two elements to intercalculate, to play well together is quite difficult, I think, no? Oh, absolutely. And uh, clearly Marvel hit a model that worked for a while. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, a lot of people draw the analogy to the how they reproduce the kind of studio system model in doing that. And a lot of the discussion of the breakdown is that they spread themselves too thin um, in terms of coordination and creativity um, and who's involved and how they're involved. What's fascinating to me, and I, and this is like a personal disclosure. So part of my interest in comics came it isn't sort of my taste culture necessarily, <laughs> um, but my partner is a comic book artist. So I have a personal investment. He's done a lot of work for DC Comics, but all the major publishers. And uh, seeing that process and having access through those relationships was like, perfectly timed in terms of when all of this was happening. And so I took advantage of that. And my co-author, I think we worked really well together because his background was his family owned a comic book shop. And so we were able to kind of each bring, and he comes from a very fan identity, whereas that is not my identity in terms of this material. Um, so it was an interesting process, but my partner points to, I've, I've wandered off to where I was coming from. Uh, my partner points to oftentimes how what's happened with the movies and TV shows now is exactly what happened with the comic book industry in the 1990s. Like they started telling too many stories. They had them all interconnected in ways that required way too much labor for anyone beyond the core audience. So all of the issues of overproduction and um, rush time schedule and all that have come to bear now, I think, on mm. a lot of the more uh, DC and Marvel stuff. I think one point we try to make with the book, or that was really important to me, was yes there's dc yes there's marvel and there is that whole dimension of looking at the superhero stuff but actually there's a whole sort of ecosystem of smaller publishers and smaller companies 
that and creators that are making comics that aren't superhero oriented that are being valued as IP to be exploited and that I think is still a space that's incredibly desirable um and has its own mechanics um and reasons for functioning and that will continue on so there's a difference between comic books and superhero comic books sure and there's the graphic novel and there's the intersection between all these things and the electronic games and oh absolutely the movement in both directions Yes, but it is interesting. I, I sometimes think about 1970 when you could pick up a copy of Life magazine and there would be a, a shot of a nerdy guy with Buddy Holly glasses who looked like he was about 23 and who'd got an MBA at Stanford or Harvard. And we were told this was the new face of Hollywood because this guy could plug into the interests of young people that became what's now called New Hollywood. Just as in the 20s, you could find JFK and RFK's father, Joseph, evil fascist, going to Harvard and saying, you guys are going to take over Hollywood. There's going to be rationality from now on. It's a new breed of man who will run things. Whether today, with the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer, gigantic success versus the relative failure of these unbelievably stereotypical superhero movies. We're going to have another set of photos, not in life because it doesn't exist anymore or look or whatever, of young nerdy men and women who are going to be in touch with the new desire for stories that mean something. I mean, I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fascinating just to study Hollywood these days because it's just such a nightmare mess by all accounts. Like they just can't figure out. I mean, the tech industry has so entirely generated dysfunction or contributed to the already existing dysfunction that and intensified it, really. Um, I mean, that was interesting for me with comics because what became very clear to me was how much like with indie film, and there were a lot of parallels in studying these very different media or, you know, and also taste cultures and types of content that a generation, a very specific generation came up as huge comic fans and they gained control of a lot of the mechanisms of Hollywood. And that was what facilitated. So like, what is it going to be? This is a huge discussion in the industry right now because pretty much everyone running all of the companies is over 60 and white and male, which I actually in my class enjoy showing them all of the corporate websites and talking about who's running these places and is so fear-driven and risk-averse that... Everyone is hesitant to take any big risks, you know, any leaps. My main hope is that the theatrical business, especially with the strike, there's so little film content planned for this next year, theatrically, that maybe some weird stuff will get into the space that wouldn't. That's my idealistic hope, right? <laughs> but we'll see. Well, it's also worth noting that the 
uh, cries from the heart about crisis are utterly routine. Uh, they never stop. They've circled around technological questions for a century, and they will for the next century. Indeed. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. It is a weird moment. Uh, the more you talk to people who either study the history of this or have worked in the business long enough, you know that all of these things are cyclical. There's always some new crisis, et cetera. What will be fascinating to see is where and how film and television fit into all of this or how much of it shrinks, relatively speaking. I do think that the music industry is interesting to look at here in the sense of it was in crisis and now it's sort of went through it and it's recalibrated and by all accounts has reconstituted itself to a new normal. And I think that is probably what will happen, but the next few years will be odd. <laughs> Prof, I have one more question for you, if I may, and then I'd like to throw to you to invite you to subtract from or add to what we've discussed. It might be a theme or two we haven't mentioned about your work that you'd like to go into. My question, my last one for you is this. You've told us about the growing importance of interviews to how you go about your work. But apart from that, how do you find shit out? How do you discover things, Prof? <laughs> Good question. Uh, you know, it's it's tricky, and this is something I teach methods, industry methods, a lot, and advise a lot of students, and this is a constant challenge, right? Because as John Caldwell has aptly illustrated, you have to take every dimension of everything you get with a huge grain of salt, to say the least. Um, what is or is not true coming from the people you interview, or do you deal with it as truth at all, or just as different discourses that they're presenting or narratives? Um, in terms of, I'm constantly reading the trades, I'm constantly reading a bunch of different sources and trying to kind of find the key points that pop out of what, how those are or aren't similar to what I'm hearing from all the people that I come in contact with. Uh, I do think that I, so I run a center here at UT called the Center for Entertainment and Media Industries. And through that, a lot of what we're focused on is not only bringing in guest speakers for classes, but professionals for meet and greets uh, with the students. I do think that the space of bringing in industry professionals to talk to students in, especially in smaller venues, you get information that you otherwise might not necessarily. So to me, that is massively helpful in terms of context and just the constant and working with a lot of students and colleagues who are also engaging and thinking about these things in different ways is so generative. Um, so I'd say all of those things. <laughs> well, you know, when you mention the trades, one of the great things is the way in which they're now, of course, owned by the same firm, but Variety and Hollywood Reporter have diverged somewhat in that the Hollywood Reporter, which used to be a right-wing rag of no value to anybody, is now terrific, I think, in its quite deep analysis of what's going on. How long that will continue, I don't know. But I think it's very impressive. What about things like law cases? I mean, they really go to finality in court in the case of Hollywood. But when there are filings registered, lodged, sometimes you get something akin to the truth, I think, 
Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, those are nuggets that are incredibly valuable. Um, One thing that was fun for me a few years ago um, was I was asked to be an expert witness. And I think you've done this too, in terms of being an expert witness for court cases involving media companies, which was incredibly revealing. The case that I was involved in was on behalf of the Writers Guild um, when they were suing talent agencies about things that I won't get in the weeds on. Um, And so being able to kind of see how, um, get some context in a very different way behind the scenes. Ultimately, they settled because you would not want a lot of this to go to trial. Uh, But being involved in the process, I also think that just in terms of what I value, to me, it's, I I appreciate you're doing a podcast like this. One of the reasons I'm trying to get this center up and running. And I look to what Michael Curtin and Jen Holt did at UCSB previously with their um, own center, Media Industries Project Initiative, is how we are able to circulate what we're thinking about and talking about beyond just the pages of paywall journal articles or expensive books. The work I did was much more important than yours, Prof. I was called in, amongst other things, my favorite was to give evidence on the semiotics of M&Ms. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That is important. (laughs) That is where you need a straight, white, stale male to tell you what's really going on. When the big issues are being confronted, who are you going to call? That's what I'm asking you. That's what I'm asking right what now. What a fun thing. Or it just- was fun. It was about whether, well, I won't go into too much detail, but what happens when you, you take an M&M and you stick it in the middle of a cookie and then market it as something else by shaving off the M&M logo Oh, like said, my when, when the really crucial issues are in play, there's only one guy you can call. Simple as. Yeah, no, I think that you should be hit up by all of the major candy manufacturers to <laughs> be addressing how their co- product is integrated. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel as I made a major contribution. I did some other ones, but that was, I think, the most earth shattering. However, Prof, um, Last thing is to say whether ask you whether there are things we've not discussed you'd like to add, or whether there's a bit looking back over what we have mentioned that you'd like to, you know, enrich. Um, I think we've we've covered a lot of terrain, and I appreciate your your thoughtful questions and uh, pushing me to talk about indie, whether I wanted to or not. No, um, <laughs> no, I think for me, uh, where where I'm going now, as I said, is more in the domain of work, but also distribution. I've done a lot of work in media distribution, particularly in the Hollywood context. Um, and thinking about issues of location, um, a lot of what I'm focused on right now is thinking through how Austin or Texas function as media capitals, building on ideas from Michael Curtin, um, in a sort of network of capitals. Um, and what, because of my basis in Austin and in Texas, uh, what are the distinct ways in which the media and technology industries intersect here? How and why is it that uh, 
an infrastructure has only been able to grow to a certain scale here, despite the fact of the sort of cultural capital attached to Austin, the Linklaters and Terrence Malick's of the world residing here and so on. Um, which, of course, as you have discussed in your work and so many others, Vicki Mayer as well, is like how much incentives play into this, which in this case of Texas aren't great. But anyway, I think that that's kind of where I'd end up. And I certainly welcome folks who wanted to talk about similar things who get to this point in the podcast, reaching out and chatting about it separately. Prof Perrin, thank you so much for your generosity in sharing so many ideas and so much of your work with us and pedagogic tips, which I loved. And for being here, I always learn a lot from reading your work and I've learned even more today. Thank you for the invitation and it's great to get to catch up with you as well. <laughs>